everybody welcome back uh, my apologies for the delaying content but today we have a really really great episode for you guys um, today we're gonna be welcoming our first guest um, who is a historian um, he is going to give us some helpful information in understanding the United States um, the country's history as it relates to slavery and the current day racial climate um, so I'd like to welcome Jarrett Fletcher to the show Hi. Hey, thanks for being on today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, about yourself, how, what your degree's in, how long you've been teaching? Uh, he's also a history teacher. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, so I went to the University of Florida um, by way of Valencia College, transferred there. Got my master's at the University of Florida in American history. Um, as an undergrad, I studied like race philosophy, race theory, because uh, I was very into philosophical history. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now, I actually went back to Valencia College in Orlando, back in Orlando, teaching for the last two years uh, every topic we have, but primarily modern American and colonial American um, histories. So. Great. Thank you. Um, so I would just have a few questions I'd like to ask you. Uh, mm -hmm. So thank you. Um, so what would you say to people who, who say, um, you know, why are we still talking about slavery? This, this ended 200 years ago. Why are we, why are we still having this conversation today? Yeah, um, and you know I've talked about this a little bit, getting ready for the show, yeah. mm -hmm. that there's just so much that goes into that, mm -hmm. that we really, most of the time, I don't think people really are talking about slavery. When, when, when slavery is used as a shorthand, it's more so used, I think, to describe like all of injustice done onto the black community in this country. Um, but I kind of got thinking after we discussed the topic of this about, you know, what specifically aspects of this are about slavery. When people do talk about it, what is it they are actually talking about? And I think the biggest aspect of that is this kind of misunderstanding of what slavery was. Misunderstanding of the historical context of slavery, misunderstanding about what makes American slavery American slavery. Um, because I think most people, when they think about slavery, picture like Scarlett O'Hara and the plantations have gone with the wind and um, the media representations of slavery, right? And there is some work to be done to show different aspects of slavery more modern, but most of us have ingrained this idea of the slave plantation as primarily a location of um, almost like family, like, congeniality and like basic respect of position. Mm -hmm. um, I think that does a great disservice because that's not what the lived experience was for anybody involved. It, it was a almost industrialized and brutal world uh, filled with um, violence and every kind of torture imaginable. Uh, so I wanted to kind of have a um, a little bit of an exercise that I do with my students, which is, if anybody listening wouldn't mind, just trying to go along with me and imagining um, the world I'm going to describe about the experience of being uh, enslaved in this country. Um, so for most people, um, the thing we don't realize is that this idea of, most of us have heard about the separation of families. Um, we don't realize that that well, would... I oh, I'm sorry to yeah, no, jump in. I don't... Sometimes I really wonder if people understand to the extent that families were separated. Yeah. Um, I, I have had... I've heard people... 
I, I have these conversations quite often and I've heard people make comments about like talking about um, currently making yeah. comments like, oh, well, how do they not know what country they're from? Okay. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's a hard thing. That's kind of a hard thing to know when we're looking at well, with what went on in slavery. And they're like, oh, well, no, why can't they just ask? There has to be a grandparent somewhere down the line. Somebody had to know where they came from. So I really, yeah. I, I'm really, that brought to my attention that I'm really wondering if people really mm. understood to the extent of how bad slavery was and really what went on. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great example of how people just don't understand what was actually happening, right? Um, and we actually know that there was a significant shift in like the mid 1700s. Um, practice had always been, the, the basic understanding of how slavery should work or would work as an industry um, was that you would take able-bodied adults and bring them to a country and then work them for the rest of their lives and then discard them when they were no longer usable. Um, this is why we see like in Brazil just devastating numbers of people being imported because as they were working in sugar refinery plantations, um, sugar, because it's crystal, melts to the bone if it's hot when it touches you. If a slave was burnt, uh, very often they would be put down as like a beast of burden or something would be in most agricultural senses. Um, so in those contexts, they relied on a steady stream of adult workers. America was different. Um, because there started to be a desire for young slaves, children slaves, specifically from Africa and from um, the Caribbean that they would purchase and bring to the Americas um, because those younger slaves would work longer lives. Um, they could be trained to be more docile and less um, resistant to abuse or instruction. They didn't have cultural heritage and memory because they were normally taken as young as you know, six, seven years old. Um, and and they, this isn't even talking about babies that were actually separated. This oh, is, right, yeah. Mm. Uh, no, they would, they would normally take, they, they liked to uh, wait until able-bodied okay. um, age so that you could see whether there'd be physical deformities or um, any kind of, you know, it, it's, it's disgusting to think about, but it, if you think about it in terms of what it, it's like for anyone who's familiar with the concept of like buying a good cow or a good um, horse, they thought in the exact same terms. They wrote in the exact same terms. So like a yearling, right? The, 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 or a, like a, a young calf, like they'd like to see a certain amount of development before they purchase them at auction. Hmm. Um, that isn't to say there weren't baby separations. That um, was actually pretty common, especially if you had a plantation which based some of their income off breeding to do that so as to decrease the amount of resistance within um, the slave quarters to taking children that like more of an emotional connection had been built with. Um, so yeah, in the American context, right, by 1808, the import of new slaves is forbidden. So for the last couple generations of slaves, everything is bred entirely in America. But even before that, America mostly Mostly our slave population was built out of pre-existing slaves. America is unique in the sense that breeding was a big part of slavery. Um, this did not exist in, in other racialized slave contexts. Um, so for most enslaved people, 
some of their early earliest formative memories that they write about in journals or talked about in these abolitionist journals that were written about their stories, some of the first things they talk about is remembering the experience of being on the auction block and, and remembering the experience of, because I think we can all kind of picture in our mind the, the scene of like the New Orleans square with like people on blocks and people are bidding for them. But that wasn't actually the whole process. There was also this very intrusive series of days that would take place over the course of the week of an auction, which again, if you think about it in terms of breeding, it was the same similar structure in which prospective buyers would go into houses, they would strip these people naked, they would examine their bodies, they would look for physical deformities, um, they would look for beating marks, on, especially on children, because if children had marks already of whippings and brandings, that was a sign that they were a disobedient slave. And so they would avoid those kinds of slaves, um, which creates a whole other layer of like ways that you conditioned and trained young um, people born into slavery so that they wouldn't disobey to the point of needing physical reprimands. Um, they were, especially women, um, I should say women, girls were often uh, molested. Um, they were they were examined very very thoroughly. There were times in which they would force, uh, you know, um, slaves to have sex in front of them to see their potential like physical prowess and fertility. They would have these special. They literally had special buildings. Uh, you can actually find some of these in some like southern slave cities uh, that were designed to be like they almost look like a peep show. Where you could, where the white Southern man could sit behind a screen and watch. That way, he wouldn't imbue his own dignity by like being in the same room as a sexual act between slaves. Um, and there was this whole culture of this very intrusive examination. And many slaves, this was their first experience outside of the their their kind of plantation home or wherever they were born. So they go through this horrendously traumatic experience. Then they are sold to a new master. So more often than not, they didn't have family where they went. It wasn't unheard of that slaves would be traded. Like, because if you think about it, there's only a handful of plantations per state. It wouldn't be super uncommon that you might have cousins and such in the different areas you go. Uh, a lot of these younger slaves would be adopted by an older, normally matriarchal figure who would train them in the behavior that was appropriate. They would be trained... Um, the likes and dislikes of their master. They would be trained in the likes and dislikes of the mistress of the house. They'd be trained which foremans have bad temperaments, which ones don't, which ones you can get away with resting a little bit, which ones will punish you severely for you know taking a break. And they would teach them basic life skills. They would teach them how to farm. They would teach them how to mend clothes, teach them how to report our house. Uh, it's a common misconception that slave owners provided for their slaves. This almost never happened because that was an unnecessary expense as far as they were concerned. The, the difference between a slave and most other kinds of property for slave owners is a slave could be trained to fend for itself. So they, and I know it's offensive to say it, but part of why I like to use that phrase when talking in these terms is that's how they thought. And it's important to get into their mindset to understand just how horrendous this was because when we talk about these experiences, the, 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 all of it is built around a psychological decision or a psychological effort or an effort to affect the psychology, I should say, of an individual to destroy their humanity and make them feel like they aren't actually a person. So what they would do to the enslaved peoples is 
they would give them an area of uh, arable land that they could farm and they could do some subsistence farming. They would give them access to uh, some lumber so they could build kind of makeshift uh, uh, makeshift um, dwellings. They would give them s something for the bedding. Uh, normally, I say give, really they didn't give them anything. They just said, I'm not using this part of my property. You're allowed to build the basic things you need to survive out of it. So there was no providing of the things that was necessary to do it, right? It was just like bare minimum so you don't die. Exactly. Here's what you need to do so you don't die. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then don't die because you're worth money to me. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and I don't want a loss on investment, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, the times they did give things to, to slaves, it tended to be like the, the leftovers of an animal they might slaughter, right? And you can still see this in like soul food recipes, mm -hmm. right? Chitlins or hog intestines, right? Pig knuckles, right? Cow tongue. These are all parts that the white household didn't eat. So it was literally their trash discarded. Um, and it would either go to their dogs or to their slaves, right? But it... They and every time they did this kind of action, it was seen as this grand gesture of mercy and grace from their owners. Um, the slaves didn't necessarily internalize it that way, but that's the way the owners performed it. Um, the other thing they that gets brought up a lot when talking about like slave life wasn't that bad, because um, shockingly that statement is made right, um, is that they had Sundays off. They had Sundays off so they could go to church. Right. More often than not, these churches were controlled in what could be preached. And these sermons were very specifically, they, they were something, anyone who's listening who is a churchgoer, it is something you've never heard before. You've never heard a God described who's so, who is so pro-slavery, who is so pro-obedience, who preaches white supremacy from the pulpit, um, even black preachers, right? Because this is the only thing that could be approved to preach. Um, Occasionally, like, music could be part of a rebellion against some of that normalization of white supremacy. But primarily the sermons and the doctrine was strictly controlled to the point where there would sometimes be um, foremans would go to black churches just to listen to make sure this was not becoming a gathering place for radical ideas. Um, so they were given that on Sundays. And then the rest of Sunday, they had to work. Because that was the only day they had to work that farm that feeds their community. It was the only day if they were going to make it into an urban center or town to trade with other slaves who were allowed by their masters to trade some of their farm resources, right? Um, so they never had a day off, right? It was either they worked, they worked six days a week for the wealth of their owner, and they worked one day a week to make sure that they didn't starve to death. Um, and then... Even with that harsh of a schedule and that difficult life, they were completely existing at the will of their master's brutality. Um, that isn't to say there aren't examples of nicer masters. Uh, we have plenty of slaves talking about the, the, the relief they found when they went to a new plantation with foremans who didn't resort to whippings um, regularly. Um, and then some who say they found that they, you know, preferred um, plantations where they say like poked you and stabbed you as opposed to branded you, right? Like it, it's one thing that's reality is even in the nicest circumstances, there was still this perpetual threat of violence. And when we're talking about violence, we are talking speaking 
when you're not supposed to speak, looking in the eyes of people who are your betters, right? If you look in the eyes of a white person, that can be grounds for punishment. Um, honestly, just singing, if they told you, even without warning, if you sang and they didn't want it, that could be grounds for punishment for whoever started the song. Um, being anywhere you were not supposed to be was almost a guaranteed punishment. And so these punishments would often be brandings. Um, some owners branded on site as soon as they owned a slave because they didn't, just like you would like cattle or something. Um, whippings, right? Um, I think these are the more common ones that we see. Some that we don't see are the mutilation of bodies, like the removal of a finger or two, right? Um, kind of like focused scarring of arms and hands. Um, the, there were particularly cruel techniques in which they would force the separation of limbs and then pop the bone back into place. Um, this was done pretty commonly to runaways too. Uh, if, and if, a, if a slave ran away, it wouldn't be unheard of that they would have their ankle broken so as to make them, they could still work, it would, take, it would be immensely painful, but they could still work and they would be much harder for them to ever run away again, right? So they would have these, these kind of elaborate tortures designed to inflict fear and conformity. And it wasn't just the foremans. Uh, sometimes white women get a pass in this. Uh, and mistresses, there are plenty of accounts where mistresses were the terror of the plantation where they would stab people with umbrellas for getting too close to their personal space, where they would spit on people. They would spit into food before people ate it. Um, they would take brands out of the fire and force, or take coals out of the fire and force um, slaves to hold it, things like that. Um, and all the while, mistresses would regularly be preaching about God's love and mercy while doing this kind of torture to them. Um, explain to them that, this is their place within society. This is what God ordained for them. And that the, her punishment is a necessary um, evil. I feel like I'm going on a long tangent about the horrors of this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important because we lose sight of the fact that every aspect of a slave's life was, was controlled by the perpetual threat of not just literal violence, but then also psychological violence and the different ways they could torment and stress a family unit. Because if slaves did um, have children, it would basically happen one of two ways. Either they were given, I mean, I guess three ways, because it could happen accidentally, which, well, not accident, well, it could happen without the permission of the master. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, that was a pretty much a guaranteed punishment. Um, but then it could be a purposeful breeding. It could be that uh, a master wanted two slaves to reproduce. Uh, so normally that they could, he could sell the children or slaves could apply to a master to get married uh, and, and could ask for permission to reproduce. Um, when this happened, if slaves were kept, if slave children weren't sold young, that child is now for the rest of their life a way to control the parents. Because the scariest thing you can tell a mother is, I will take your child from you, right? Mm -hmm. The scariest thing you can tell a father is, I will rip your family unit apart, right? Mm -hmm. And they would do this purposely as a means of controlling them. And as the child got older and better understood what was happening, as their parents got older and less able to work, it was, well, you better do their labor or I'm going to have to sell them to make back the money, right? So it is this generational like way of controlling families under your control. And the shocking thing 
I think for some people, is also that plenty of these slaves were also the descendants of the plantation owners, right? Rape of slaves was astoundingly common. Um, the most famous example is probably Thomas Jefferson. And I know that's a current, like, hot topic issue as we're talking about, like, legacy of slaveholders in this country. Mm-hmm. But Jefferson, he was in his 40s. He was a widower. And he was traveling abroad with his daughter and a slave he had purchased specifically to keep his daughter company. Um, and Sally was 14 years old when, he, when, we, when we think that relationship started. Right? He was 26 years her senior. Um, a inappropriate relationship by any metric today, much less when you add the dynamics of him being one of the most prominent, powerful men in his country and being her owner, right? So he has this relationship with Sally, this rape of Sally, right? Over the course of his lifetime, produces multiple offsprings. He frees his offsprings, which is actually kind of unique in this context. Most owners wouldn't free their own descendants. Those descendants would just become the house workers because it was seen as a sign of high class to have light-skinned house workers. Um, so you had a lot of homes servanted by the slaves who were the descendants of your father or your grandfather. That was pretty common. Um, and in Sally's case, he never freed her. Even after his death, she was not freed. Um, she died enslaved because the man who raped her for her entire life didn't allow her to live free with her children. Um, and it's, it's hard to reconcile these things with the true legacy of what slavery meant for the people who experienced it. And I think the, the, the part of it, that the 200 years thing that I think gets to me the most is that it's also not true. It wasn't 200 years ago, right? Um, 1865 was about 150 years ago, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really generous roundup to say 200 years, but that is the phrase people use. Mm-hmm. And there, um, I just saw this for the first time probably about a month ago, but there's a man alive today, Daniel Smith, whose father was born into slavery, right? Daniel Smith's uh, 88 years old. Um, his dad was older when he he had, he sired his kids, uh, and yeah, Daniel's dad was a slave. Um, so to say, oh, this was so long ago that we don't know how to deal with it, mm-hmm. right, or that we shouldn't deal with it, we shouldn't talk about it, we're, we're past the point at which it would have been reasonable to talk about it, is also just disingenuous to the amount of time it's been, right? Because as a historian, I can attest, 155 years is not that long, mm-hmm. right? It is basically... Great, great. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. It is, we have photos of those people. (laughs) Like, those are people who are still in our lives. Yeah. But, and not even, that might even just be great grandparents, not even great, great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and yeah, exactly. It just depends on the family, right? right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, and and I think, I think, you know, part of that is realizing too, in that same vein of talking about, you know, great grandparents and stuff, the, when we're talking about the people who, um, were freed in 1865, probably almost none of them had actually ever lived in Africa, right? The slave trade in America had ended by 1808. So we're talking, right, about 60 years. The average lifespan of a slave was 20 to 22 years, right? About half of what 
a white person uh, in America's was at the time. Mm. So the likelihood of any of them having ever even known their home country or their home, um, like, ethnic identity is probably a generation or two removed, right? And as I mentioned, the slave trade in America, like, the actual importation of new slaves was never that popular of a thing. So even then, we're talking only a handful of people in those last few years who would have been coming. Um, so yeah, you because you, it started right with you talking about that that yeah. people how do they lose that? It's through this utter destruction of identity and family. It's through this purposeful removal of humanity. How could you possibly have remembered? <laughs> like how, how could that be information that persisted? Right. right. Why was that even? Why would they have even been talking about that right. when there's so much other abuse and stress? Exactly. Um, the things that do survive, right, are easier to transmit, right? They're, they're things like um, certain family values, right? Like the, the importance of matriarchy within slave communities, um, the importance of percussion and music, right? These things, because they're much easier to transmit and much more universal across that like sub-Saharan African, uh, West African group that was taken, um, they survived. But as far as specific, where were you from, there's no way that would be the information that would survive. Thank you. So, and, and can you speak a little bit about, so like slavery ended, right? And then, so when slavery ended, because like we know these conversations are still happening today. When slavery ended, do you have a little bit of information about what that kind of looked like from the transition to 150 years ago it ended to where we're at today and the effects that we're seeing today from when it ended? Yeah. Um, there's so many. Right? There's, there's so many like, I, I would encourage anyone listening to just take a second, maybe even pause, and think about all the things I just described that you didn't hear before, and think about the fact that these are, that's the reality for somewhere between 12 to 20% of the American population, that that is their ancestry, right? Um, because once we start talking about, a lot of times I think people talk statistics and they'll say like, oh, 12, only 12% of America is black. It's like, if you go, to, if you mix in people who have, ancestry related to slavery, you're, you're going up over 20% because there's plenty of mixed um, people in this country. But anyway, as far as the legacy of that, um, imagine that that was your family's history, right? We've all heard family histories. Imagine that replace the story of the time grandpa bought a boat or the, you know, great, great grandfather who was a minister or all these stories they've heard their life. Replace them with either explicit stories of violence, rape, or punishment, right? Or in the cases of more victorious stories of escape, of, of independence, of ownership of business and land, but knowing that those are rare and, and not the norm, and that's why they're so celebrated, right? They're not just funny stories about great-grandma. They are this is why great grandma and grandpa were amazing, right? This was made them unique in this time period. Um, basically being able to survive. Um, imagine knowing that that whole violent history I just described is true and is real and applies to your family and your history. And then imagine growing up your entire life sitting in classrooms where nobody talks about it, where the people next to you don't believe it where your peers don't understand it, where you go to college and no, and it's rarely talked about. Um, 
then you go into the workforce and your colleagues don't recognize it and don't believe it. You spend your entire life basically being gaslighted by society, right? To believe that your family history isn't as emotional or powerful or painful or traumatic as you know it to be, right? So much so that a common mantra, when I talk to um, black students or black friends, a common mantra in black families is just don't tell white people. Don't tell white people because they don't know how to process it. Don't talk about it. I think it's one reason, you know, a show like yours is good is that this is a conversation white people also need to be having. We need to have this with each other that we shouldn't force um, black people to explain the painful legacy of history, uh, of, of our history as a country, of slavery, because they already know. <laughs> they, right, they, yeah. They've already lived and yeah. discussed it in their households. There hasn't been much of anything that I, I spend a lot of time really trying to learn as much as I can. And I don't think there's ever been one thing that I've learned that I've talked to any black friend that I've had that is new information right. ever. Yeah. Yeah. And I can tell you as an educator, it is fascinating to watch, mm -hmm. um, to stand on the other side of the room and, and talk about these things to a class and watch the, the kind of mental gymnastics and logical gymnastics white students go through trying to understand what they're hearing, right? And then almost universally, one of them will ask, why didn't anybody, why, doesn't, why isn't this ever talked about before this class, right? And I try not to be too like, <laughs> like condemning of the public school system and just say, that's what college is for. But more often than not, the truth is because that's by design, right? Um, that it, it was a choice. It, you know, without getting into too much detail, because it's a huge topic, yeah. but a perfect example is the Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. um, in the years following the war, the Daughters of the Confederacy created a handbook that they gave to school districts and textbook creators that made clear their guidelines of what was a proper way to discuss the topics of the Civil War and slavery. Anything that did not fit those would be boycotted. True or not? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no. And, and the, the specific guidelines were you could not refer to slavery in terms of like violence or as a uh, negative institution. Mm -hmm. And you could not say slavery was one of the motivations for the Civil War. This is literally the beginning of the state's rights argument, right? The Daughters of the Confederacy forced that into the education system. Um, they are not the only group to have done that kind of thing. They're not, they, they're one of the oldest groups to do it, but those kinds of conversations have been happening in textbook creation and school curriculum design as recently as a few years ago. Which I think really is important because like we hear people say like, oh, white supremacy is built in. Like I, I hear these, these comments all the time. Oh, white supremacy is built into the foundation of the country. And I think that that is, I mean, a beautiful example of, of what that actually looks like. Yeah, and it's funny. One, one argument I see a lot is people saying um, that, well, the founding fathers, basically they didn't know any better is kind of the way they say it, right? That like, Everybody was doing slavery. How are you going to judge them for it, right? There were slaves in the Caribbean. There were mm -hmm. the Irish were enslaved is one that comes up a lot, which I'm not going to get a into. Of their environment, right? Mm -hmm. That like this is just the world they lived in. Um, that's not true either. Mm -hmm. There were abolitionists in that day, right? Um, I know the the Hamilton musical makes a big point of Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence being abolitionists, but um, 
John Adams was an abolitionist. Ben Franklin was an abolitionist, right? Um, they hated that part of the Constitution was a compromise with slavers, right? The, the three-fifths compromise, it was written into the foundation of this country as a way of compromising political power to slave owners. They knew what they were doing. They knew the deal with the devil they had made, and they prayed that their descendants would do a better job of removing it. Their descendants didn't. They, they believed that by, they, they had hoped that by 1812 or so, slavery would be abolished in this country. That was kind of the, the talk amongst abolition at the time. Slavery was never, was never chosen to be abolished in this country. The war when it was fought, the decision to abolish it was done without the southern states as part of that decision-making process, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the belief is that the southern states lost their right to make that decision by declaring war and then were forced to accept the abolition of slavery. But in reality, right, no Southern politician was there making those decisions and, and, and being a strong, committed aspect of dismantling white supremacy out of the Constitution. Um, we've never, ever in this country made a concerted effort to attack white supremacy in this country. We have made concerted efforts towards entrenching notions of equality but those are two different things. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think we do a really, really good job of acting like it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and can you just give like a quick, um, mm -hmm. just like quickly what the three-fifths compromise was? Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, that's uh, one of the things with like when you, you study history or something, right? You forget yeah. that some terms <laughs> are like, that's right. Not everybody has talked about these things. So three-fifths compromise was, it was pretty straightforward. Um so, like, the Electoral College, right, functions by, based on, like, population, right? Your representation, each state's representation in the House is determined by population. So, the slave states had a pretty major population problem in which, in, like, North, in, like, North Carolina, right, upwards of half the population does not count towards your population statistics, meaning a state um, like North Carolina would have significantly less representation within a federal government based, a federal government body based in proportional representation, right? Because none of their own people um, count for population because they're not people, right? Like that's the problem. <laughs> they're not legally people. So the three-fifths compromise was that they would count every enslaved person, every um, yeah, every enslaved person as three-fifths of a person, right? Um, this also applied to, I believe, freed blacks, uh, blacks as well. Um, freedmen were, were counted because they weren't given citizen rights. Um, and the design of it was to basically convince Virginia, Maryland, the Carolinas, Georgia to join into this government because they had no reason to otherwise. Um, because they knew if there were any proportional representation that the founding fathers who were abolitionists may eventually win out and that they would not have the government control to protect themselves. And so they were not going to enter into a legal document with, these, with, the, with New York and Pennsylvania and the, the Quakers who were rabid abolitionists. They were not going to enter into a legal agreement with them that meant that their descendants would be fighting the battle of protecting slavery forever. So the three-fifths compromise was very much a gamble on both sides of will we be able to end slavery 
in a few generations, right? Because the idea was this, we'll get the slave states to join us by giving them political representation, um, by counting every owned individual as three-fifths of a person for the sake of the population. Mm -hmm. So they still don't get as much population counting as, um, you know, the states that have, like, the, the cities and the higher um, urban populations. But they are getting a significantly more than they would if we didn't count that population at all. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So it's all about electoral college and House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even so, like when slavery ended, right? So like slavery is over. What did it look like? It was like oh, slavery is over. Sla- for, slaves are freed. <laughs> Everybody go get a job now and start making money. Like what did it look like when, yeah. it, was, when it was over? So I think I think you're touching on a thing that is maybe maybe the number one reason people still talk about slavery, right? Which is in the immediate aftermath of the freeing of people, of the, the, yeah, the freeing of the enslaved, we had a situation in which essentially a few million Americans are suddenly n- no longer existing in the economic status they had before. Which meant you had an entire population which was now entering into an economy with no inherited wealth, right? These were not new immigrants coming with their families' heirlooms to sell and buy a house and start a business. These were not immigrants who had skills that were necessary, were being looked for in the workforce because outside of agricultural skills, enslaved people really didn't have much to offer as far as um, most professions go. We do see a large influx of black women into service industry, right? And eventually some more um, movement into service industry in general. But so you have people who have no land, no um, wealth, entering into a workforce. Also, I'm assuming they weren't educated. No, yeah. The vast majority don't know how to read. So Um, what they know how to do is... And their ability to learn new skills, right? So are both very well, like, limited. Mm -hmm. Um, very strongly limited. Um, they're also blocked from like the Homesteaders Act, which was giving out large swaths of land in the middle of the country. They were blocked from being able to go get land and start the kinds of communities that they probably could have thrived in, in which they could have ingrained like their agricultural knowledge into the Midwest of the country and built up something for themselves. They're blocked from being able to do any of that. Um, most of them go into labor work. Uh, it's been men mostly going to labor work, uh, which is prevalent in the first few years following the wars. They have to rebuild the South, but increasingly uh, white owners who are rebuilding parts of the infrastructure of the South don't want to hire um, freed slaves. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to that. So you have essentially a large swath of the population immediately destitute um, with very little uh, access to resources. But over the, in the first few years of the Reconstruction, you have large amounts of military enlistment in which uh, good wages are given to um, black men who join the military. You have, um, interestingly enough, poor whites are more inclined to work alongside and help black communities than uh, probably 
most other times uh, in the next you know 60 years or so that will come in the South. They're working. They're they're they aren't really embedded in race because because most poor Southern whites benefited from the system of slavery and might have like rented a slave here and there, but very rarely did their families enact the violence regularly, and there wasn't the entrenched animosity the same way. And most Southern whites in the the aftermath of the Civil War were angry at the planter class, the plantation owners, because they blamed them for starting the war that burnt down their cities. Right, so you have about a six to eight year period where um, black people are given the right to vote. Black men are given the right to vote, I should say. Um, they have elected officials. There's l- mostly this kind of, I don't want to call it like a kumbaya moment, but there is like proportional governments. There is actual representation, mostly spearheaded within black communities by people who were freed before 1865. Most of these are people who were either ministers or business owners. Some of them are northerners who came south, um, but they were freedmen who existed before the mass freeing of slaves. And they helped kind of build and spearhead programs that were designed to help the other formerly enslaved. This all starts to change um, after, not immediately after, but like after um, Abraham Lincoln's assassination, there's an, there, Andrew Johnson becomes president. Andrew Johnson is a Southern Democrat. He has a very different vision compared to the other um, people within the government, the other, the Congress and the House, um, how to run the country. And I won't get into all the details of that. But basically what happens is over the course of his and then Ulysses S. Grant's presidents, um, you have a weakening of the essentially restraints put on the planter class by Johnson and then a culture war which happens and plays out under Ulysses S. Grant's presidency. And that culture war leads to every single thing in the South becoming a racial issue. Right? Everything, every dollar spent by the government is a racial issue. It either goes to the poor whites or the poor blacks. And the planters are regularly saying, which one do you want it to be? Right? While ignoring the fact that they have just taken all of the control and the money back for themselves and are now divvying that up between these two groups and pitting them against each other as best they can. Um, this is where we get like segregation and we get um, all of these entrenched Southern social norms um, become, and the age of lynching and that horrible era of violence. All of that gets entrenched into the South over that culture war. Um, so basically, though, to, to kind of summarize the answer to your question, because I'm going on now, is you had a few million people freed with very little access to becoming players within an economic workforce. For, further restricted by the federal government's access to what land they could live on, further restricted by multitudes of laws within the South, including the Black Codes and right. some more famous examples, which... Discrimination, um, pretty completely easy to legal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just trying to survive. And we will get, over the course of the next 80 years or so, mass migration out of the South. And that's done due to a, you know dozens of factors... But this is where we start getting communities moving towards um, the West Coast because they're following the railroads and working their way out there. Um, And then you get communities moving uh, north because they're following the shipping lanes into the Midwest and into like middle America, like Chicago, Detroit, right? And they're gonna settle into industrialized areas. Um, Some follow up the East Coast, end up in, uh, you know, New York, New Jersey, right? Settle into their own communities there. Um, Because those are the, 
those are the families which are w- willing to take the risk of going into unknown world. They don't know what that world's like. Um, and then those families become pipelines to their other friends and relatives who follow and come and join them there once they can build communities. Um, this also serves the kind of double purpose in the South, which Southern politicians were proud of this happening, um, of diluting the black vote and mm-hmm. limiting political representation of black, of at the time, um, black males within the government. Because it was like, they were already violently oppressing them at the polls, right? Um, like the, uh, the Kissimmee massacre, talking about local history, um, happened specifically because a man voted. So they were already violently suppressing voting. But out on top of that, there's less of them to vote because we're scaring them out of these states. Um, becomes the political strategy of the South. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. I know, because I know I a know. lot of these questions, I know that this is, there's so much. I know. And I know it's, there, these, we could go on for hours with uh, the the weight of these questions. So I appreciate you for you know taking the time to, to explain them as concisely as you can. I'm trying. Yeah, I, I know. There's, there's um, a lot. I know. Uh, anybody who knows me well will know that I am not known for being concise, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I have a couple of more questions. Um, the next one is, what would you say to people who say... Um, well, slavery started in Africa, so you can't hold the United States completely responsible. Yeah, that's when I probably can answer even more concisely. Um, mostly in that, just think about how markets work, right? How supply and demand works. And if we have, uh, you know, a few thousand captives being sold by African warlords every year, mostly to um, Arab uh, aristocracy inside of multiple like um, emirs and caliphates. You have a few thousand being sold. So you already have the infrastructure of how to go capture people, right? And then you have ships show up that say are now going to offer these warlords guns, going to offer them uh, weaponry, armor, access to trade routes and ways of generating their own income. But their demand is we need more. We need a lot more. We need, we need you to take your operation that currently captures, you know, a couple dozen people a year, like your specific, like, think of it like a business partnership, right? You used to work for the, the, the you'd take them north and you would trade them to, uh, along the trade routes around the Sahara. Now bring them to the coast. And I want hundreds every month, right? And they would do this to every warlord they could find. And they would give them the weapons and the tools to do it to say that the warlords are the only ones responsible for that decision. I think is entirely disingenuous to the way markets work, right? They were business partners with the Dutch and Portuguese traders who came and gave them the weapons and tools of uh, war to not only capture, but decimate entire like ethnicities and peoples as they conquered and spread and then made their wealth off the backs of their enemies' bodies. Okay. So, to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, what you're saying is, is that there would have not been a supply without the demand. Exactly, right? So, yes, slavery probably would have... It already existed and probably would have kept existing. 
it would not have been the institution that took millions of people out of Africa, right? It would have never become that. It would have been, it would have continued to be the institution which moved, which took, you know, thousands of people out of sub-Saharan Africa and moved them to the Middle East and to North Africa. Um, but it would not have been the, the massive enterprise that the slave trade had become due to European need for bodies to work plantations in the new world. Okay. And I, yeah, I've always, you know, I've always kind of found that comment to even that argument to really be strange mm -hmm. to me. Like this happened. So I don't like the need to try to relinquish responsibility to me has always just been a really strange, um, well, it's exactly really what it is. It, it's relinquishing responsibility, mm. right? Because part of the problem with even like all of the information I talked about with what slavery looked like, to acknowledge that is to acknowledge that that's wrong and something should be done. Mm -hmm. Because I think most people who make these arguments, their fear is realization that maybe their beliefs and their identity are based on evil. Right, and that that might make them worse people. I think that's why you get such emotional reactions to a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm definitely not an expert in that, but that's just my own personal observations. Yeah. Well, and I think too, so because I'm a mental health counselor, right. and I think that a lot of that is very, you know, I think from like small, we're taught like little babies, like, oh, the United States is the best country ever. It's the best country in the world. And you don't need, like, it's like the United States and everywhere else is completely impoverished. Um, and I think it's a really hard pill for, to swallow for some people to really understand, like, there's some things that went on that are really not, you know, not so great. And yeah. we played a really not so great role in them. Well, I think the, the, the light at the end of that tunnel, right, should always be that I don't think anybody's holding any individual accountable for the actions of their ancestors, right? You're held accountable for your own reaction to your ancestors' behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, acknowledging... That, and I think that's the thing is a lot of people just don't know what to do. Acknowledging that it was evil is the thing to do. <laughs> like that is that is the it's first step yeah. of the work, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Absolutely. Um, so I have two more questions. So one is, okay, the United States is only 244 years old. Why do we hear that slavery was happening for 400 years? Yeah. Um, yeah, the United States is only that old. But the people who, like the, the English colonists and such who founded America, um, they were here since the 1600s, right? So when we say the United States, we're referring to the country created by the document of the Constitution, right? By that logic, then the revolution wasn't fought by the United States, right? Yeah. Like, so it's, it's that same, like the colonists, the colonies, the English colonies that became the United States, um, they practiced slavery. And, and the... the heritage of slavery that was adopted by the United States and the founding fathers was that legacy, right? It was, it wasn't the Caribbean legacy. It wasn't the Brazilian legacy. It wasn't the Arab legacy, right? It wasn't the, it wasn't specifically the legacy of feudalism in Europe, right? But it is entirely the legacy that like George Washington's father taught him, right? It is, it is the legacy of, um, the colonists who landed in Jamestown and Plymouth Rock and all those people. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And my last question is, would you consider slavery to be genocide? Yeah. 
this is always a really controversial one. Mm-hmm. Um, the easy answer is yes, it fits the definition of genocide as outlined in the UN's charter on genocide, right? It, it fits entirely because the, the UN defines genocide as um, the purposeful destruction of a people or um, culture with the intent to eradicate it. I think everything we described about slavery shows that it was that, right? It was meant to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, the difficult part of that is I think a lot of people associate genocide with the purposeful eradication of a people's bodies and like actual numbers, right? Because when we think of genocide, we tend to think of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. right? So we think of death camps, we think of like active eradication. And so when you look at American slavery and you say, but we took a population of 500,000 turned into millions, how is that a genocide? I think it goes back to your first question that kind of started a lot of this, right? Of, well, how do they not know where they're from? that is evidence of the genocide, right? The destruction of unknown languages and cultures and identities and beliefs and religions and the the destruction of the potential that all of those lives could have been, that is the genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, and it fits legalis- legalistically within the definitions of how we understand that word to mean. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I always... I always um just the whole conversation surrounding this, like the rebuttals that I hear are just always so odd to me. Like they really just, they're strange. And, you know, when you look at how long slavery was and then when you look at how long legal discrimination was and how, you know, how long it's been since those things have ended, we're really not talking about that much time. No, and it's, it's so, it's, 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 I think frustrating for people who are students of history, that so often the discipline is used to justify um, slavery contextually. But I think in doing that, we lose sight of the importance of understanding the specific examples, right? So slavery in the Caribbean versus slavery in America versus slavery in Brazil versus Arab slavery versus Roman slavery versus Persian slavery versus... Chinese slavery, right, versus all these different things that have happened. We can talk about them and compare them. But if that conversation is rooted in a belief that through that comparison, we are going to normalize the practice or we are going to excuse some people or justify some people's practice within it, loses sight of the fact that no matter how long ago an evil action was, it doesn't make it more or less immoral, right? Slavery 200 years ago is still evil. And ignoring that legacy and saying, well, we don't need to admit that is also reinforcing that evil. It's letting it exist still, right? Because it's inflicting that legacy as a weapon against the people who it still matters for and who still want to talk about it. You know, I think... I think if you if you hear people talking about slavery, rather than allowing yourself to fall into a place of frustration that a conversation you think should be over isn't, you probably should think, why is this important for that person to still talk about? Mm-hmm. What about that is something they're still processing or dealing with and work from there as opposed to quieting history, right? right? I, I, it just kind of reminded me, it's like the, 
it's like any conversation about legacy, right? You shouldn't quiet the conversation. Um, you should try to understand the nature of like why it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, well, everybody, and thank you so much. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jared, for so much for coming. This was great, yeah. and I really, you really I'm offered sure a lot. Uh, listeners are tired of my voice by thank now. You. No, I think <laughs> they are going to really enjoy it, so thank you so much. Um, everyone, that is all for today. Um, if you'd like to send us a message or if you guys think you have something valuable you'd like to add to the show um, or you would like to be a guest, send us a message on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash.